World by Josephine Gardner. Hellenism continued. The Cynics. The story goes that one day Socrates stood gazing at a stall that sold all kinds of wares. Finally, he said, "What a lot of things I don't need." This statement could be the motto for the Cynic school of philosophy founded by Antisthenes in Athens around 400 B.C. Antisthenes had had been a pupil of Socrates and had become particularly interested in his philosophy. The Cynics emphasized that true happiness is not found in external advantages such as material luxury, political power, or good health. True happiness lies in not being dependent on such random and fleeting things, and because happiness does not consist in benefits of this kind, it is within everyone's reach. Moreover, having once been attained, it can never be lost. The best known of the cynics was Diogenes, a pupil of Atenes, who reputedly lived in a barrel and owned nothing but a cloak, a stick, and a bread bag. So it wasn't easy to steal his happiness from him. One day, while he was sitting beside his barrel enjoying the sun, he was visited by Alexander the Great. The emperor stood before him and asked if there was anything he could do for him. Was there anything he desired? Yes. Diogenes replied, "Stand to one side. You're blocking the sun." Thus, Diogenes showed that he no less happy and rich than the great man before him. He had everything he desired. The cynics believed that people did not need to be concerned about their own health. Even suffering and death should not disturb them. Nor should they let themselves be tormented by concern for other people's woes. Nowadays, the terms cynical and cynicism have come to mean a sneering disbelief in human sincerity, and they imply insensitivity to other people's suffering. The stot, the Stoics. The Cynics were instrumental in the development of the Stoic school of philosophy. Which grew up in Athens around 300 BC. Its founder was Zeno, who came originally from Cyprus and joined the Cynics in Athens after being shipwrecked. He used he used to gather his followers under a portico. The name Stoic comes from the Greek word for portico, stoa. Stoicism was later to have a great significance for Roman culture. Like Heraclitus, the Stoics believed that everyone was part of the same common sense, or logos. They thought that each person was like a world in miniature, or microcosmos, which is a reflection of macrocosmos. This led to the thought that there exists a universal rightness, the so-called natural law. And because this natural law was based on timeless human and universal reason. It did not alter with time and place. In this, then, the Stoics aided with Socrates against the Sophists. Natural law governed all mankind, even slaves. The Stoics considered the legal statutes of the various states merely as incomplete imitations of the law embedded in nature itself. 
In the same way that the Stoics erased the difference between the individual and the universe, they also denied any conflict between spirit and manner. There is only one nature, they averred. This kind of idea is called monism, in contrast to Plato's clear dualism or twofold reality. As true children of their time, the Stoics were distinctly cosmopolitan in that they were more receptive than con- contem- contemporary culture than the barrel philosophers, the cynics. They drew attention to human fellowship. They were preoccupied with politics, and many of them, notably the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, A.D. 120-1 through 180, were active statesmen. They encouraged Greek culture and philosophy in Rome, one of the most distinguished of them being the orator, philosopher, and statesman Cicero. 106 through 43 BC. It was he who formed the very concept of humanism, that is, a view of life that has the individual as a central focus. Some years later, the Stoic Seneca, 4 BC through AD 65, said that to mankind, mankind is holy. This has remained a slogan for humanism ever since. The Stoics, moreover, emphasized that all natural processes, such as sickness and death, should follow the unbreakable laws of nature. Man must therefore learn to accept his destiny. Nothing happens accidentally. Everything comes through necessity, so it is of little use to complain when fate comes knocking at the door. One must also accept the happy events of life unperturbed, they thought. In this, we'll see their kinship with the cynics, who claim that all external events were unimportant. Even today, we use the term stoic calm about someone who does not let his feelings take over. The Epicureans as we have seen, Socrates was concerned with finding out how man can live a good life. Both the Cynics and the Stoics interpreted his philosophy as meaning that man had to free himself from material luxuries. But Socrates had also had a pupil named Aristippus. He believed that the aim of life was to attain the highest possible sensory enjoyment. The highest good is pleasure, he said. The greatest evil is pain. So he wished to develop a way of life whose aim was to avoid pain in all forms. The cynics and the stoics believed in enduring pain of all times, which is not the same as setting out to avoid pain. Around the year 300 BC, Epicurus, 341 through 720, founded a school of philosophy in Athens. His followers were called the Epicureans. He developed the pleasure ethic of Aristippus and combined it with the atom theory of Democritus. The story goes that the Epicureans lived in a garden. They were therefore known as the garden philosophers. 
above the entrance to this garden, there is said to have hung a notice saying, Stranger, here you will live well. Here pleasure is the highest good. Epicurus emphasized that the pleasurable results of an action must always be weighed against his possible side effects. If you have never been on chocolate, you know what I mean. If you haven't, try this exercise. Take all of your saved-up pocket money and buy 200 crowns worth of chocolate. We'll assume you like chocolate. It is essential to this exercise that you eat it all at one time. About half an hour later, when all that delicious chocolate is eaten, you will understand what Epicurus meant about side effects. Epicurus believed that a pleasurable result in a short term must be weighed against the possibility of a greater, more lasting, or more intense pleasure in the long term. Money and buy a new bike or go on an expensive vacation abroad. Unlike animals, we are able to plan our lives. We have the ability to make a pleasure calculation. Chocolate is good, but a new bike or a trip to England is better. Epicurus emphasized, though, that pleasure does not necessarily mean sensual pleasure. Like eating chocolate, for instance. Values such as friendship and appreciation of art does count. Moreover, the enjoyment of life required in the old Greek ideals of self-control, temperance, and serenity. Desire must be curbed, and serenity will help us to endure pain. Fear of the gods brought many people to the garden of Epicurus. In this connection, the Adam theory of Democritus was a useful cure for religious superstitions. In order to live a good life, it is not, it is not unimportant to overcome the fear of death. To this end, Epicurus made use of Democritus' theory of the soul atoms. You may perhaps remember that Democritus believed there was no life after death because when we die, the soul atoms disperse in all directions. Death does not concern us, Epicurus said simply, because as long as we exist, death is not here. And when it does come, we no longer exist. When you think about it, no one has ever been bothered by being dead. Epicurus summed up his liberating philosophy with what he called the four medicinal herbs. The gods are not feared. Death is nothing to worry about. Good is easy to attain. The fearful is easy to endure. From a Greek point of view, there was nothing new in comparing philosophical projects with these medical science. The intention was simply that man should equip, equip himself with the philosophic medicine chest, containing the four ingredients I mentioned. In contrast to the Stoics, the Epicureans showed little or no interest in politics and the community. Live in seclusion, was the advice of Epicurus. We could perhaps compare his garden with our present-day communes. There are many people in our own time who have sought a safe harbor, away from society. After Epicurus, many Epicureans developed an overemphasis on self-indulgence. Their motto was, live for the moment. 
The word Epicurean is used in a negative sense nowadays to describe someone who lives only for pleasure. Neoplatonism, as I showed you, Cynicism, Stoicism, and Epicurism all had their roots in the teaching of Socrates. They also made of certain the of the pre-Socratics like Heraclitus and Democritus. But the most remarkable philosophic trend in the late Hellenic period was first and foremost inspired by Plato's philosophy. We therefore call it Neoplatonism. The most important figure in Neoplatonism was Plotinus, c. 205 through 720, who studied philosophy in Alexandria but later settled in Rome. It is interesting to note that he came from Alexandria, the city that has been the central meeting point for Greek philosophy and Oriental mysticism for several centuries. Plotinus brought with him to Rome a doctrine of salvation that was to complete seriously with Christianity when its time came. However, Neoplatonism also became a strong influence in mainstream Christian, Christian theology as well. Remember Plato's doctrine of ideas, Sophie, and the way he distinguished between the world of ideas and the sensory world. This meant establishing a clear division between the soul and the body. Man thus became a dual creature. Our body consisted of earth and dust, like everything else in the sensory world. But we also had an immortal soul. This was widely believed by many Greeks long before Plato. Plotinus was also familiar with similar ideas from Asia. Plotinus believed that the world is a span between two poles. At one end is a divine light, in which he calls the One. Sometimes he calls it God. At the other end is absolute darkness. Which receives none of the light from the one, but Plotinus's point is that this darkness actually has no existence. It is simply the absence of light. In other words, it is not. All that exists is God or the one, but in the same way that is a beam of light. Grows progressively dimmer and is gradually extinguished. There is somewhere a point where、uh, that the divine glow cannot reach. According to Plotinus, the soul is illuminated by light from the One, while matter is darkness that has no real existence. But the forms in nature have the faint glow of the One. Imagine a great burning bonfire in the night, from which sparks fly in all directions. A wide radius of light from the bonfire turns night into day in the immediate area, but the glow from the fire is visible even from a distance of several miles. If we went even farther away, it would be able to see a tiny speck of light like the far-off lantern in the dark. And if we went on moving away, at some point the light would have to reach us. Somewhere in the rays, somewhere the rays of light disappear into the night, and when it is completely dark, we see nothing. There are neither shapes nor shadows. Imagine now that reality is a bonfire like this, that which is burning like God, 
and the darkness beyond is the cold matter that man and animals are made of. Closest to God are the eternal ideas which are the primal forms of all creatures. The human soul, above all, is a spark from the fire. Yet everywhere in nature, some of the divine light is shining. We see it in all creatures. Even a rose or a bluebell has its divine glow. Furthest away from the living God are earth and water and stone. I am saying that there is something of a divine mystery in everything that exists. We can see it sparkle in a sunflower or a poppy. We can sense more of this unfathomable mystery in a butterfly that flutters from a twig, or in a goldfish swimming in a bowl. But we are closest to God in our own soul. Only there can we become one with the great mystery of life. In truth, at very rare moments, we can experience that we ourselves are that divine mystery. Plotinus's metaphor is rather like Plato's myth of the cave. The closer we get to the mouth of the cave, the closer we get to which all existence springs from. But in contrast to Plato's clear twofold reality, Plotinus's doctrine is characterized by an experience of wholeness. Everything is one, for everything is God. Even in the shadows deep down in Plato's cave have faint glow of the one. On rare occasions in his life, Platonism experienced a fusion of his soul with God. We usually call this a mystical experience. Platonism is not alone in having such experiences. People have told of them at all times and in all cultures. The details might be different, but the essential features are the same. Let us take a look at some of these features. <laughs>